afternoon and welcome to Acting Up, an hour of resistance radio that explores the movements that made us, drawing from the activist archives through to the voices of resistance today. I'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from stolen lands, the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I'd like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty has never been ceded. This year at Friends of the Earth, we're celebrating 45 years of resistance. That's 45 years we've been mobilising communities, resisting the oppressive forces from patriarchy to nuclear racism and transforming our future towards a more just world for all. I'm Megan Williams, and to continue our retrospective series looking back at the incredible history of Friends of the Earth, we will be going back to where it all began, 1974. Joining me to take us there is my wonderful co-host and co-producer of this very special series, Em Gayfar. How are you going, Em? I'm going great. It's great to be here. Really interesting show we've got lined up for today. I can't tell you how excited I am, actually, to have people from the 70s here in the studio with us. It's pretty exciting. And so for a bit of context, Friends of the Earth internationally was set up in 1969 by David Brower, who he was fed up with the USA-based conservation group, the Sierra Club, for neglecting to tackle nuclear issues or work on the international level. So FOES always had a strong foundation of social justice, anti-nuclear principles and an international perspective. And then going on from that, the first Australian-based group uh, formed in Adelaide in 1972 and then Melbourne just after that in 1973. Today we're going to be getting some, you know, hearing some of those stories from guests who were there for some of those really early days. And back in week four of the show, we chatted with Cam Walker about the structure of the faux network and how the local groups um, and people nationally and internationally connect with one another. So more on the structural level. So if you're interested in a bit more info about that side of things, definitely check that episode out. Today we're going to be taking a dive into the stories and experiences of those early days. And so first up uh, will be Richard Nankin, who's now an organic grower in West Gippsland, uh, but was involved in Friends of the Earth from the early 70s. And following that, we'll be having discussions in studio with Neil Barrett, Pat Jensen and Bro Sheffield Brotherton, who all uh, made very valuable contributions to Friends of the Earth um, from 1970, 1974 and in Pat's case through to the early 1990s. So I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about. And we will be covering the history of campaigns and the politics of the time over our 45 years of campaigning here in so-called Australia, what we did and why it's still important. So stick around after this community service announcement. I just think that it's ironic that the state of Victoria want to treaty with Aboriginal people but have no issue in destroying our sacred sites. War is devastating on the environment. In peacetime, the military is a huge user of fossil fuels, a huge driver of nuclear energy and ultimately the architect of nuclear weapons. Subscribe to 3CR in 2019, fighting for social justice and environmental change. And to all the people that are so afraid of the solutions to climate change that they choose to live in denial instead. The current solutions to the climate emergency are much easier to cope with than the outcomes that will come if we don't. Feed Radical Radio? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Follow, 
follow the You're listening to Acting Up, and we're celebrating Friends of the Earth's 45th birthday with a retrospective series looking into our 45 years of creative resistance. You're here with Megan and Em, and on the line we have Richard Nankin, who was there through the formation of Friends of the Earth Melbourne. Welcome to the show, Richard. Hi, everyone. How are you going? I'm good. I'm just on my way back from a organic produce delivery, so there might be a bit of free-ray background noise. Yeah, that's okay. So to start us off, can you tell us what were your first interactions with Friends of the Earth as an organisation, and how did it come into existence? Well, from what I recall, um, I was involved in my last few years of high school in the uh, 72-73 with a group called Inspect, which was uh, set up by Peter Elliard and other activists to inspire high school students into environmental awareness. And um, I think it was through that Inspect uh, newsletter or information I got wind of this new group, Friends of the Earth. And um, when I finished high school in 73, I had a year off before uni. So I, uh, at the end of 74, mid-74, I think it was, uh, I trundled into a little place at 59 MacArthur Place in Carlton. And there was this fellow, Peter Hayes, uh, working away there, trying to set up a group and looking for volunteers. And I was a bit put loose for a few months before uni started. So I said, I'll help having uh, a big interest in environmental issues. Now, this was 1970. For when uh, Labor had just got in, uh, Dick Hamer, who was a very progressive, smaller liberal uh, state premier, had strong environmental and arts um, bent. There was a very optimistic time, but we we're also, I mean, it's way back now, but um, in memory, but the Cold War was still on. We were still really worried about um, uh, the possibility of, of being having nuclear weapons, you know, re- unleashed all over the world. The um, whaling was still going on all around the world. So whaling was a big issue, uh, and there was a proposal for French to have, have nuclear tests in the Pacific. So there was a lot of um, uh, the, the foundational issues, you know, that, that Friends of the Earth was involved in back then were, you know, Friends of the Earth, the Greenpeace, Project Jonah, uh, were all under the one roof. Absolutely. And it was a really exciting time uh, for, you know, for someone in their late teens to, to get involved. And uh, Peter was a great mentor and... Um, and guide to us all. It sounds very exciting. And we'll get into uh, the political context of the time a bit later in the show. Um, but it's rumoured that a very instrumental meeting took place on French Island. Can you tell us a bit about that? That's no, no rumour, yes. Yeah, so um, there was, uh, I think it was Peter Brotherton, uh, there was Sandy Pul- from West Australia, Sandy Pulsford from South Australia, Stephen Myers from Sydney, myself and Peter Hayes and a couple others from Melbourne, and Peter's uh, dad, I think, managed one of the properties down there at Flinders Island, uh, sorry, French Island, sorry, French Island, um, in, um, yeah, in Western Port, and he had the opportunity to uh, provide it to us uh, to host what was the first uh, national meeting of Friends of the Earth. That was the end of 1974, around um, uh, just before Christmas, I think, and we had a, uh, a long weekend sojourn down at French Island and um, basically agreed to the formation of the national group, bringing together the original Adelaide and Melbourne and the other branches to, to form a national organisation. And um, that was um, it was a wonderful time. Uh, I got uh, asked if I would be go to Fiji to the 
Suva to the first ever Nuclear Free Pacific Conference to represent both Friends of the Earth Australia and Greenpeace Australia, which happened uh, later in 1975. And I managed to swing, when I was at uni in 75, a student loan to fund my fares to uh, Suva Fiji, where we uh, came up with the idea of a nuclear free Pacific Treaty, which eventually became uh, a real thing. Mm. Okay. And uh, that, that was, the, at the time in 59 MacArthur Place, uh, it was Peter Hayes' brother owned um, this property in MacArthur Place, MacArthur Place Carlton, uh, like a double-fronted house that had a little tiny little cottage next door, which was actually 59A, I think it was, MacArthur Place, which was a tiny little, you know, six metre wide by about 25 metre long, narrow little ancient workers' cottage. And um, that's where we were based. We basically had free rent thanks to um, Brett Forge, Peter Hayes' brother-in-law. And, um, yeah, that was, that was the premises where it all began. Mm. And on this series, we've loved hearing how Friends of the Earth developed its technology from websites to mobile phones. You have the story of our first database and petition. Could you tell us about that? So, um, yeah, the um, Friends of the Earth was... Uh, looking for members and supporters when it was really properly established. From memory, I think it was a, pro- a Project Jonah Save the Whale petition and um, it might have been a Stop the Nuclear Tests petitions and we used, people actually signed and put their name and address on the petitions and we used our crude old photocopiers and hand-addressed envelopes and posted out uh, snail mail to all these people that had signed the petition asking them if they'd join and become members of this new Friends of the Earth group. And um, I think that's how we got our first mailing list and our first membership base. And so and that was in late late '74. And in those days, there was no computers. It was all hand done. Uh, the you know to produce a sticker was like three weeks of, of, of doing artwork, and the mechanics of how you produce documents was was really analog and uh, quite quite different from today. I mean, I remember. Uh, later on when we had the um, Greenpeace newsletter which morphed into Chain Reaction and uh, myself and Stephen Myers were the first editors of that, founding editors of Chain Reaction and um, that was all, you know, the the process by which it was all done was filing cabinets and hard paper documents and and, and borrowed photocopiers at the local university library and it was very clunky and very labour-intensive but a lot of fun. And it worked. Yes, well, the public was concerned about nuclear tests. There was a great uh, uh, emotional uh, wave of support for Stop the Whaling. Uh, you know, the, there, was, there was definitely a groundswell of, of concern from the, the public, particularly on the progressive side, to support a, a nascent environmental group like Friends of the Earth. And uh, you mentioned, you touched on it earlier, but can you set the scene a bit more deeply for the political context that you were working in? Like, what was the focus of the government... Um, okay, so we'd had 25 or 23 years of, of smaller and, and right-wing liberal government, uh, and then in '74, uh, Labor got in for the first time in decades federally uh, under Gough Whitlam, and uh, we'd, at the same time we'd had a state election. And even though the Liberals had got in, they got un, under a new, um, much more progressive, very wet liberal named Richard Hamer or Dick Hamer, who was uh, quite progressive and supportive of the arts and of environmental issues all through his um, time in government. So at, the, the, things seemed possible. You know, there was, there was many, many banquets just being introduced and, you know, that was the, the halcyon years of Labor after, you know, over two decades out of power where they, were, they brought in all these progressive laws. 
And uh, so there was an optimistic time that we could achieve change. And uh, even though, you know, the processes were very analogue, as I said, and labour-intensive and clunky in a way, but uh, the mood was optimistic that, you know, we didn't have to have a nuclear winter, that whales didn't have to be slaughtered to, to you know, that, um, you know, things could be fixed. Yes, it sounds like Friends of the Earth was very much built on hope. Um, is there, is there, and it still is today, uh, and is there any other, like what other effects did this sort of have on Friends of the Earth as an organisation? Do you attribute that time to um, defining any of our values? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure that, um, you know, well, the Friends of the Earth in the US was already a role model in terms of the anti-nuclear, uh, anti-uranium mining. You know, there, at the time, just 74 was the proposal for, uh, for a huge new uranium mine up in uh, Kakadu National Park. And the Labor government had just declared Kakadu National Park, you know, at that time. And yet they were excising a little area out of it as a potential uranium mine. And that really horrified us. Uh, at the time, there was, um, you know, the, the first of the uh, nuclear accidents was happening and, and people were worried about uh, nuclear power as well as about atomic bombs. And so there was a lot of opposition to, to uranium mining. And also um, uh, we had a, a fellow supporter from Northern Territory by the name of Strider, who was the fellow who had actually run a uranium mine uh, in Northern Territory with his, with his family. Um, and he knew how toxic the gases were and how poisonous uranium was from his own hands-on experience, and he was one of our supporters uh, mm. in the early days. And so you know, there was a, a great mood of, of that we can fix things, that we can change things, that we can, we can make things better. But um, it was a challenging time as well because, you know, the, as I said, the Cold War was on. You know, Russia was still the other, and, um, you know, the Soviet Union was still the other, and... and um, it was a very, very disjointed world and there was a lot of horrifying things going on in Cambodia and all that sort of thing. There was so many um, uh, controversial issues around the world and the environment was just raising its head as one of those controversial issues that needed to be dealt with and we were that little group of people that cared about nature, that cared about the future of humanity. We were already aware way back then of climate change and uh, of toxic chemicals, uh, pesticides, as well as nuclear power. So we knew that there were things that needed to be done to fix the, the trashing of the environment, which was already going on on a large scale even back then. Mm. Yes, there's certainly a lot of uh, front lines in the fight to save our environment. But uh, that's all we've got time for, Richard. So thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. I just want to make a quick mention that um, one of the foundations that we thought of in, in 74, 75, uh, the, the small group of people that was involved in Prince of the Earth was to set up a food co-op and a bookshop to help pay the rent and, and keep the group going. And those things have, have been a great success in providing a sort of financial foundation as well as an ethical, you know, base for, for Friends of the Earth. And that was, you know, they were really good ideas. <laughs> Absolutely, and the food co-op is still going strong today. We'll be continuing this conversation in studio with Pat Jessen, Neil Barrett and Bro Sheffield-Brotherton after this community service announcement. Tune in to Billabong Beats Tuesdays at 11am with me, Gavin Moore giving a voice to both Western Kulin and Kulin First Nations peoples. 
join me to talk about philosophy and dream time stories surrounding the waterhole, the sacred fire, the land, the plants and animals. Billabong Beats, 11am Tuesdays on 3CR. Good afternoon, you are listening to 3CR. This is Acting Up and we are doing a special on Friends of the Earth's 45 years of history as part of our birthday retrospective series. My name's Em, I'm here with my co-host Megan and today we are going back to the very early days of Friends of the Earth here in Australia and we've got with us three people who were involved in some of those early days campaigns from the 70s. We've got Pat, Neil and Bro in the studio. Thanks for joining us everyone. Thank you. So we just heard from... Uh, Richard Nankin, who was involved from about 1974, and he was speaking about some of the early days at Friends of the Earth, um, setting it up and that kind of thing. Um, so I guess I was curious to hear some of your reflections on, on what he said. Maybe, Neil, you could um, take us through. You were also involved at French Island. What was your take on some of those early days as well? Uh, first of all, I think Richard did a really good job of summarising it. Um, I was at the French Island uh, meeting, and as I was telling Megan, a day or so ago, I got a free trip across. Everyone else paid. I got a free trip because I played the old piano on the ferry. And a year or so later, the ferry drowned, and I always wondered whether the piano might have floated <laughs> off to China or, or something. But um, I remember it as a... Yeah, it was a, it was a really good uh, meeting. We'd all been talking on the phone for, for months about how to get things moving nationally, and this coming face-to-face was really important. Uh, the enduring regret I have is that no one took any photos of that <laughs> meeting. When we went looking for them a few years ago, there was just seemed to be nothing around. But uh, that was the days when you'd never have a camera in your pocket all the time. And, yeah. um, uh, Pat, what, um, like, what, what stood out to you about Richard's, the way Richard spoke? Do you agree with um, kind of his reflection on Yeah, the time? it was a very um, comprehensive uh, summary of those times and um, just jolted my memory into um, the dimensions of what was being faced and um, how, I guess, uh, people were stirred into action uh, because all of those things that he talked about um, became central to our lives. Mm. And, Bro, you started over in uh, in Perth doing some anti-uranium um, campaigning over there. I'm wondering if you can just, you know, add to what Richard was saying about the political climate at the time and maybe some context for what was going on in Western Australia as well. Well, I, I certainly empathise with what Richard was saying about the political context, both federally and in Victoria at that time, with Dick Hamer as quite a liberal, liberal Premier that we're not used to at all these days. And uh, I always, when I'd occasionally come across to Melbourne, because by 1975 we were living under Sir Charles Court, which was like being under Bielke Peterson in Queensland, so Australia was quite different countries politically then, as probably the last election we saw it was now, so... There was that different dynamic going on and in a sense it was at the state level it was much less politically robust and more difficult for us. But I think the other thing that was important back then was there was a lot more state-based activity going on. 
both politically and in the media, like, for example, what now is a 7.30 report, used to be totally state-based. And there was much more state-based campaigning around in those days and much more opportunity than there is now with just kind of a different era. <coughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, of course, in 1974, Gough Whitman was in power. Um, but even, you know, politicians kind of looked different back then. I dug up a quote from Malcolm Fraser that development requires modification and transformation of the environment. The planet's capacity to support its people is being irreversibly reduced by the destruction and degradation of the biosphere and the need to understand the problem to take corrective action is becoming urgent. You know, a comment like that is unimaginable from politicians these what days. What year was that? Exactly. That was in 1980. And I was wondering whether you think that, it's, that is an accurate... Well, you know, like how, whether that was a, you know, h- how much truth was behind that or whether that is political spin. Yeah, um, I, I would think it was spin. The, the Liberals at that time weren't, they were about as partial to the environment as they are today. Mm. And uh, Fraser only became really small L liberal, I think, years later when his kids influenced him, as mm. far as I, as far as I know. Um, so I'd be surprised if that really reflected the federal Liberal Party at the time. Mm. I think there were small currents, though. There was, first of all, the external affairs powers was not used first by Hawke, it was used by Fraser over Fraser Island and took the Elkin yeah. Peterson on. I mean, th- these are snippets, they're, they're not the general malaria in which we used. The other thing that I think was really quite important is that Fraser actually set up the inquiry into Wales and Wailing which eventually got rid of whaling in Australia, and his daughter, as we're told, used to turn up at breakfast every morning with a Save the Whales badge on. (laughs) So I I agree with what Neil said. It was a minor point, but there was actually some minor points in there that I don't discern in the Liberal Party these days. Yes. The tricky thing for us in the around about 1975 when I joined was that we we were effectively Labor Party supporters. There was no Greens Party at that time, but we were also very critical of the Labor Party. So Peter Hayes, for example, went to Canberra at one stage and tried to stand up to Rex Connor, who was the Minister for Minerals and Energy, and Connor actually physically took him by the shoulders and threw him out of the office. (laughs) Peter regarded that as quite a badge of honour for a long time. But uh, it it was typical of that period that we were we were in two minds you know how much should we be against the Labor Party and their attempts to as you have the Labor Party today with Albanese trying to keep the the industrial workers and miners on side by uh, supporting uranium mining it was a hell of a split in the Labor Party with uh, even people like Jim Cairns only really coming in to support us quite late in the piece you know they really thought uranium would be a good thing. Mm. Did you see that, Pat? Yeah, well, look, I was swanning around um, Europe at that time and I sort of became much more aware after 75 and the demise of Gough. Oh, yeah. So I came in a little bit later. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And so reflecting on, you know, it seems like uh, whaling, anti-uranium, some of those kind of were the big issues at the time. And um, I guess, you know, thinking about when you were at... French Island or coming together, you know, there's a lot of kind of coming together of different groups that ended up forming Friends of the Earth Australia and then all of the local groups. I think something that 
is still important now and that over the years has been a defining factor is this kind of consensus decision-making and meeting culture that we have at Friends of the Earth that's part of our flat structure. So I'm wondering how that operated back in the early days as well. Decision-making at Friends of the Earth drove us nuts. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, I I remember meetings going to 3 o'clock in the morning as we tried to resolve things in some sort of de- really democratic way and uh, you know by that time some people would have just collapsed and managed to get out of the room others were managing to continue and um, it was really it wasn't easy at all I was actually state coordinator so I had a you know f- some would say a little bit of little bit of uh, power in in the thing but um, it wasn't it was sometimes very satisfying, at other times it, it wasn't. We worked extremely hard. That was the thing I remember most. We, were, we worked round the clock at times. So for the Range Uranium Inquiry, we, we got $3,000, I think, to spread between 10 of us to prepare papers for the inquiry. By the time the inquiry came around, I stood up to give the opening little talk and I was so exhausted I couldn't get a word out. I just had to, to walk out. And that's, that's where we're at. Peter Hayes was one of the few who could work three days in a row without sleep. The rest of us found we couldn't do that. So um, it was, uh, yeah, the, there were lots of challenges at that time because we were coming into that sort of participative decision-making process properly for the, you know, that was the early years of it in the in the early mid-70s. Yeah. yeah, and I'm curious, like, was that a radical concept at the time or was consensus decision-making and anti-hierarchy kind of, you know, a movement back then? Peter? Um, it was unusual at the time. I mean, the Greens have certainly tried to implement it since, Um I, I echo Neil, I mean, for some of us, maybe we're just old white blokes, it could get, even though there were great accomplishments and things that came out of it, by God, it could be bloody frustrating at three o'clock in the morning when you're going <laughs> round and round in circles. Uh, and, and the other thing that I, I can remember was the power of people who would block a consensus, which still is, is part of that thing, which I think a lot of groups have started to work through over the years, is still... Um, shows how hard it is to let let go of that power, but yeah. I think yeah, it was it was very different. I mean, I, I think people interacted in that way. For mine, the extent to which it was deliberate and thinking we were doing something new in that regard, I, I don't feel. But I certainly think thought that we thought we were doing something different and important, mm. which highly motivated, and, and particularly around uranium mining and nuclear power. I remember, um, and it was a bit later, I came in in 1978, um, so some of those early foundation meetings um, obviously had occurred, but it was a bit of a badge of honour, I think, that um, we were uh, working towards consensus and um, decision-making, and um, we did it, and we did it... You know, my memory is that we did it pretty well. I mean, we used to have some incredible arguments... Um, and, you know, it, it, it caused all sorts of um, issues. Sometimes even sort of people would break away. But uh, it was a really important concept. And uh, in the early days of um, organising mobilisations, 
um, you know, we, we prided ourselves in being the first um, group to bring in non-violent direct action um, mm. to, to Australia and um, can remember sort of thumbing through the monster manual from, from the USA and um, working out our moves of um, how we would organise um, these mobilisations in a uh, consensus-driven way and um, everybody was 100% committed to it. I mean, we had, as I said, we had some huge arguments and, and people did block it and um, that was monumental as well, um, but we stuck with it. Mm. The biggest damn argument we ever had in Perth was over the colour of a bloody sticker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and that went on for hours and I'll never forget it and I can't even think what the sticker was about now. <laughs> Well, the consensus decision-making and anti-hierarchy is certainly a badge of honour we still wear today. Uh, And we'll be back after this quick break. Mum and Dad and Denny saw the passing out parade at Puckapunyal. It was a long march from cadets. The 6th Battalion was the next to turn. It was me who drew the card. We did Canungra, shoal water before we left. And Townsville lined the footpaths as we marched down to the quay. This clipping from the paper shows us a young and strong and clean. And there's me in me slouch hat. With me SLR and greens, God help me. I was only 19. From Buntow riding Chinooks to the dust at Newy Dad, I'd been in and out of choppers now for months. And we made our pinza home VB and pinups on the lockers. And an Asian orange sunset through the scrub And can you tell me, Doctor, why I still can't get to sleep And night time's just a jungle dark and a barking M16 And what's this rash that comes and goes, can you tell me what it means God help me I was only 19 Operation when each step could mean your last one on two legs. It was a war within yourself. But you wouldn't let your mates down till they had you dusted off. So you closed your eyes and thought about something else. And then someone yelled out, Contact! And the bloke behind me swore. We hooked in there for hours. Then it got almighty raw And Frankie kicked a mine The day that mankind kicked the moon God help me He was going home in June Frankie 
drinking tinnies in the Grand Hotel on a 36-hour wreck leaving Bung Town. And I can still hear Frankie lying screaming in the jungle till the morphine came and killed the bloody row. And the Anzac legends didn't mention mud and blood and tears. And the stories that my father told me never seemed quite real. I caught some pieces in my back that I didn't even feel. God help me. I was only 19. And can you tell me, doctor, why I still can't get to sleep? And why the Channel 7 chopper chills me to my feet? And what's this rash that comes and goes? Can you tell me what it means? God help me. I was only 19. are listening to 3CR. This is Acting Up and we are doing a retrospective series looking back at Friends of the Earth's 45 years of activism. My name's Em and I am here with Megan in the studio. Hello. And I've got with me some of the people who were involved in the 70s at Friends of the Earth. We've got Pat Jessen, Neil Barrett and Bro Sheffield Brotherton. And so far we've been giving a bit of context and history to sort of the time uh, that that Friends of the Earth got up and running, what it was like in the 70s. And off air, we were just chatting about, you know, how we have talked about how from a kind of top-down political level there was a, a lot of conservatism and it was a different a different time than we can imagine now. But there was also these really radical shifts, um, you know, that Friends of the Earth was a part of in terms of, you know, the gay rights movement and the women's movement and um, how that kind of impacted people. So I guess, yeah, I, w- I would love it if... Um, any of you wanted to comment on how you felt that time was empowering or was, you know, an interesting time to be a part of? Pat, did you want to maybe speak on that? Oh, well, I can say that um, certainly um, we had... um, The the gay rights issue was um, at the forefront. I remember Lee Holloway, uh, the late Lee Holloway, he died of AIDS um, in the 80s. Um, He was uh, a great mover and shaker. He was um, one of the leading people in Chain Reaction. Um, and um, women's rights were um, certainly uh, growing. We had, you know, we had all the examples of Jermaine Greer and, and all of the other women that were um, very active at the time, and we were we were keen to uh, push push ahead for our rights and stand up and be counted. And you know, I think um, there was a lot of women uh, involved in Friends of the Earth doing um, significant things at the time. Yeah, and Neil or uh, Bro, did you want to add anything? Well, to I mean, from dear old little Perth, we were a much smaller group. But what I what I do recall very well is having lots of positive interactions and dual campaigning um, with people from the women's movement, from the gay rights movement, um, lesbian women in particular. But I also, what I also remember well is a lot of people from faith-based movements. I'm not a faith-based person, but they were, and they were very active. Yeah. And also a lot of people... Um, uh, in in the aid and justice movements, and we yeah. Cumulator Board, for example, in Perth, we work very closely with. So, the, 
those linkages I think were very very strong back then and for many of us sort of stuff was happening in a way that it seemed to be different from what had gone before and it was really exciting to feel part of that Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're making me recall it, the, yeah. the work we did getting around <coughs> trade unions mm. um, and the churches and the different uh, women's rights groups and, and whatever. I'd, I'd sort of pretty much forgotten that. But we did a lot of work in trade unions and I think that the, we spooked, this is a pretty grand statement, but I think we were part of the process of spooking the Australian community about the fear, on the fear of nuclear Mm. Um, uranium mining, the whole thing and it has it meant that Australia would never have a nuclear power station unlike say the French did and the British Yeah, you, um, um, you, you say spooked but I mean I, would, I saw it as bloody hard work and we did enormous amount of community education Yeah, 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 but the result was that we mightn't be the best word no, but it's not that the, right the word. Australian community has been generally very anti, anti-nuclear for, for since those days and we, mm. we probably played a, a sig- we could have played a significant part in well, that. Well, probably. I mean, there's no <laughs> doubt. All right, okay, let's claim it. There's no doubt. Yeah. I mean, the work that was done, I mean, I, well, I guess that was the sort of area that I was particularly um, committed to and I came in in 78 I'd read in, in fact Neil Barrett I, I picked up a copy of Red Light for Yellow Cake in a demonstration against uranium mining in Western Australia went up to um, northwest of Western Australia to Broome and sat there for a year or two enjoying life and um, oh, yes. was quite radicalised by the um, National Times and um, and, you know, it really did spark from that book and came so, back and was yeah. very involved after that. And we got into nearly, you know, the, we, we did things like the Nuclear Environment book, which was, you know, very solid work with um, the movement against uranium mining. And I swear we got that book, uh, which was a handbook on nuclear power for schools and the community, into every school. We, we had... Films, um, Backs to the Blast, The mm. War Game by Peter Watkins. Uh, the fi- we supported Dirt Cheap, the film by um, Hayes, David Hayes. Um, we, we were hiring out those films to, to the community. You couldn't get them really and um, people were watching them. We filled the Collingwood Town Hall um, for an energy efficiency meeting so that people could see energy efficient light globes. I mean, this is a time when uh, this stuff was marginalised. We're on the fringes. Today it's, you know, it's, uh, it's so different. But, you know, I'm claiming it, Neil. All right, OK. <laughs> I'll tell you the other thing we should claim really, really well, and that's the work with unions and how great the unions exactly. were back then. My dear old friend, Yellow Cake Bob Hawke, um, announced sort of to the media and to the world at large that he was going in as president of the ACTU to the ACT Congress to overturn the ACTU's position against uranium mining and boy did he go down in a flaming heap that he never saw coming oh, yeah. the, uh, the joy that we felt that day to know how solid the work was but how important it was to people and for the life of me I'm trying to remember the rather conservative old union guy who led the fight against him, and I can't right now remember it, you know, in the middle of the night. But it was wonderful to see all kinds of people were doing this. Mm. 
Uh, we had um, when when the the ban well, it was called black bans then uh, ban against uranium mining was mooted to be dropped. Uh, Friends of the Earth, um, of which I was um, a major part of this particular demonstration, um, a group of women. I can't remember exactly how many of us there were, but there was a big handful of us and we, um, we put on moustaches and we, we, we got some men's suits and ties and we went into the ACTU and we knocked on the door and we walked inside and what we had done um, had uh, garnered all this support from the international context, the unions, um, the international organisations around the world and... Um, I was saying this to Megan the other day and she nearly fell off her chair, um, <laughs> that we got all these telegrams, yes, telegrams, and we read them out, Alexis as well, and we read them out one by one um, to, to the ACTU people at the time. And um, it was, uh, I mean, it didn't change anything, but it did make us feel better. And... Um, you know, it was part of that big 1984 ALP meeting as well when, you know, they were going to change uh, that policy. It was a really big deal. Mm. Seems like it's, you know, even though all of you have been involved with anti-nuclear, it's just there's so much that's happened over the years and it's great to get a snapshot of some of those campaigns. We might just take a moment now to take a short break and play some community service announcements and we'll be back uh, to finish off the show with some more great stories. This is Acting Up. VCR broadcasters present over a hundred radio programs every week, including a diverse range of community language shows. Come to more Tricia Community Radio. Please subscribe now. Tustami una ila ida Tricia Community Radio araja al istrakel an. Ningal ungalin samuha vanoli Tricia rai kertu kondir kondir están escuchando Radio Comunitaria 3CR. Suscríbete ahora. Support the station that gives your community a voice. Subscribe to 3CR. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised logging, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulation. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories, from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is out. Welcome back to Acting Up on 3CR. We're celebrating uh, 45 years of creative resistance, Friends of the Earth's retrospective history series. Uh, You're with Megan and Em. And uh, we've been covering off on a whole range of fabulous things that happened from 1974 onwards into the 80s. But one famous... um, famous actions that really 
led to a lot of involvement was the anti-nuclear bike rides. Um, and Neil, I was hoping you could talk to us about where did that idea come from, how many people got involved, and, and what did the bike rides lead to? I don't know where the idea came from, but it would have been a late night meeting at MacArthur Place that some bright spark said, hey, why don't we all ride our old bikes to Canberra? And myself and another guy then headed off up to Canberra working out where to stop each night. And that was quite a fascinating week or two I spent, you know. It was, we were staying in churches and different public halls and whatever. In the end, 50, roughly 50 people went, including two guys, two people that Peter Hayes recruited from Japan, the Japanese nuclear movement, a guy and a woman. And they were wonderful to have on board. And Glenn Tomasetti, who was then a very well-known folk singer and later an author and a feminist, probably the best-known feminist in Australia at the time, I suspect. And she came, I shouldn't ride a bike, but she came by car. And every night we would have a public meeting in all these towns. So all the way to Canberra, roughly 50, 60, sometimes 100 kilometres a day. And sometimes with cars going past, throwing stuff at us, and it really wasn't <laughs> necessarily the most popular thing to do at the time. And so that was the first one. We got to Canberra. There was actually a film made on it, which is a lovely little film that you can get from Film Victoria these days, I believe, called Ride Against Uranium Mining, made by students and staff at Rusden. It's a, quite a terrific little little show. Um, we had a big uh, stop on the bridge going across to Parliament House and uh, many people were arrested, I forget how many, but I'm a bit ashamed to admit that I'm seen on the film trying to get people to sit down and be arrested and I wasn't arrested myself, so <laughs> I live with that to this, to this day. But then there was another one the next year and 250 people took part and that was quite an organisational feat that... Uh, from I, all around Australia, yeah? Starting mm. from Melbourne to Canberra, I presume people did come from other places. But he tried. Really. You tried. He rang me up probably at 5 o'clock in the morning saying, gee, it would be a great idea if you or someone else rode to Canberra from Perth. <laughs> did I say that? <laughs> yes, you did. You certainly wow. said that. And I said, no way. And then I thought about it for 24 hours. I thought, maybe. And so I rang him back and said, maybe. And I think I must have slept on it again. <laughs> You've got to remember that uh, these are the precursor to the really big demonstrations that, that occurred as the years rolled over mm. and the, the build-up. Uh, you know, in the end, or when I say in the end, uh, you know, later on we had really massive, um, you know, um, nuclear war, you know, deterrent demonstrations. But in the early days, um, it was all, always the non-nuclear proliferation demonstrations, but the uranium demonstrations were what grew out of those bike ride ones. And we had hundreds of thousands mm. of people marching in the street every year because the, uh, the issue became central and, you know, is very much the reason that we don't have nuclear power in Australia today. Um, and, you know, you, you've got to remember that, you know, there was a whole international movement that, that we felt very, very much part of and uh, was very, very important. And I think, you know, 
we're starting to see these sort of demonstrations building again in, uh, in relation to climate, which is really, really heartening. Yeah, in 1977, the marches around most of Australia, particularly the last one leading up to the federal election, was bigger than any of the Vietnam moratorium marches. It was just absolutely huge. There were 200,000 people in mm. Melbourne. It was, and I, we haven't seen those crowds since no. until the last school strike. That's right. Yeah. And, that, that, and we thought those days were over. Uh, makes your so, heart sing. Well, 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 but also to see the young people exactly. driving that. This thing is, we're supposedly past that, and I think it's an, an mm. indication of what's coming up. Mm. And we had, you know, we had support from the unions, we had support from um, all those community sectors. We, the musicians, we had the most fabulous musicians um, performing for free all around the country. I mean, it really was um, an amazing time. Mm. Mm. And I'm interested, like, what was Friends of the Earth's role? Like, you know, obviously there was a lot of. Um, people involved in that sort of mobilisation. What, what was Friends of the Earth's role and how did the network across the country collaborate to, to work to, to make that happen? Well, um, have you ever, well, one of the, I was thinking about, you know, you, you asked the question to me prior to our interview about, you know, the technology we used at the time. Um, first and foremost was the paste up. So, you know, you had your, your community artists and we had the most amazing stable of community artists who could mm. draw. Anyone who could draw would draw. Just to put on the back of the bathroom door? Or? No, no, they're no, in the streets. No, no. You know, yeah. they're like the poster behind you, the, po- the you know, is underneath the um, Hoddle Street Bridge. You know, we had, ma- and we'd go, we'd get our, we'd get our um, paste, our bucket of paste and a group of people would... Um, go out and you'd hope that you wouldn't get picked up by the police and um, off you'd go and we'd do hundreds and hundreds a night and you know the leaflets so were handed out people would stand at stations hand out leaflets and then you know and that was done nationally around the country uh, there were newsletters different organizations yes. magazines what was the standing order for stop uranium mining stickers Neil I, I remember it's ten thousand dollars a week at about 10 cents each, but maybe it was only $10,000 a month. Uranium, no thanks. No, stop uranium mining. Yeah. The orange and yellow one. Yeah. And it was really quite funny because foe at Carlton or Collingwood, whatever it was at that time, put that order in. And then suddenly, after they thought they'd turned the order off, they kept on coming. Yeah. <laughs> they, must, they must have had millions of them. But, yeah. but it was extraordinary. Literally 10,000 of these things were being cleared a week. Yeah, yeah, around the country, which just incredible. It was very yeah. common to to be uh, find yourself in in a in a lane in traffic behind a car that had stop uranium mm. mining on it, mm. and then this little book that we did stop what is it called red light for yellow cake sold at a dollar, and there were thirty thousand copies sold in wow. in a few years. <laughs> so it helped to keep things going. Mm. But then, I mean, people were also working in the office for. A very small amount of money. I said before we got three thousand dollars from the federal government for the range uranium inquiry, and it kept ten people going. But uh, anyway, mm. yeah, yeah, we would, we're not allowed to work for that amount anymore. No, Every, no, could, no, but I, I mean, people were working for less than a dollar or nothing even. Yeah, it was a really important way of converting people's um, energy and their anger into action 
and you know I still think today there's no better recipe for that mm, absolutely and I think um, off air Pat you mentioned Walker Press as someone that um, was important oh, yes. back in the day well Walker Press um, and you may or may not know that that's the building we're in today uh, Walker Press was a community printery and mm. they mm. used to just print um, yep. print and print and print it was a collective um, I'm not quite sure what the um, structure was. You might know, Neil. I'd say Jack Gilding probably had a hand in the ownership of it, and Jack <coughs> is now very active in renewable energy matters in Hobart. And he was. He was. And the, his young yeah. brother Paul was a kid around here. I remember. That's right. At times, Paul and he's Gilding. become quite a leader now. Well, yeah. um, Jack was the um, solar um, coordinator for Friends of the Earth when I came in in '78. Oh, yeah. 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 But, um, yeah, so Walker Press was this, this info, and then they sold the building off. Um, I'm not quite, I can't quite remember what, you know, what was the decision to sell Walker Press. I guess it was maybe the invention of the computer. It went broke. <laughs> yeah, well, but the I computer... Think Jack the, went com- to the Solomon Islands in, for a while. Yeah. Computers, but also computers um, was sort of came in mid-80s, didn't Don't they? Don't forget Letraset, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, we're showing our age. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, we do. We are getting towards the tail end of the show. Is there anything that you want to mention before we wrap up today? Well, I have to say, we were also very involved in the uh, campaign to end whaling, and we won that inside by 1978. We stopped in Australia. And I must say, at that stage, me having been an activist for four or five years, I had a belief that the world was going to be transformed far more quickly than it seems to have been since. Mm. But I, I think echoing what Pat said before, I mean, to see this emerging again, we are facing the greatest emergency of all time, and it's great to see people getting the urgency uh, to tackle that and the leadership being taken by young people. Yeah, and, and just yeah. keep it radical, Friends of the Earth. And what an inspiring note to finish it on. Uh, that brings us just to the end of our show. I would like to thank all of our guests for joining us today. Richard Nankin, Neil Barrett, Pat Jessen and Bro Sheffield Brotherton. Thank you so much. Thank Pleasure. you. Thank you. And uh, I'd also like to thank my co-host, Em, for your support in the studio and all your work throughout the series. Uh, and everyone at 3CR who have, ha- have helped us make this show a reality. To catch up on the conversation or listen back over the series... All of our episodes are now available for streaming on demand via 3cr.org.au forward slash acting up. And if you're enjoying the series but think we've missed something that you've been involved with at Friends of the Earth, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you via our Facebook page or to give us a call. Stay tuned. Up next, we've got Jan's Tuesday Home Time, another long-standing radical current affairs show that brings you the voices from international grassroots campaigns. Taking us out today is good old Patty Smith with People Have the Power. (laughs) 